0: Radio Aaron. We present Blackbird on the Boyne, a portrait of Francis Ledwidge drawn from the writings and reminiscences of his contemporaries, and from his own published and unpublished writings. The program is compiled by Philip Rooney.
1: years ago, Matt Maguna, who once lived where the Tower of Dunamore stands in the Valley of the Boyne, used to play that sad melody on his fiddle. The tune is The Blackbird. It was the favourite tune of Matt's close friend and constant companion, Francis Ledwidge of Slade. sad music of the blackbird it's the music francis ledwidge remembered when he wrote the poem to which he gave the title to m mcgee who came when we were all sad and gloomy
2: and cheered us with sad music old memories knocking at each heart troubled us with the world's greatest lie you sat a little way apart and made a fiddle cry
3: Francis Ledwidge of Slane. Francis Ledwidge was born in the village of Slane, County Meath, in 1891. He was one of a family of nine.
1: These are facts, but behind the facts are the memories of those who knew the lad who was to become the poet of the Boyne. His brother, Joe Ledwidge, who still lives in Slane, recalls those days of the turn of the century.
4: There were nine of us in the family. Frank and I belonged to the youngest group. He was about three years older than I. I was the youngest. We grew up together, and we were always very close to each other. He was very intelligent, and he learned very easily. When he was only in the junior grade at school, he was writing poetry. He was helped in this by the oldest member of the family, Pat, who was a monitor in the school. Perhaps
1: that's the beginning of a portrait of the poet. Francis Ledwidge was no more than six years of age then, and when he pleaded with his older brother Pat to teach him how to write poetry, he meant precisely what he asked. Pat, a delicate lad in his late teens, was himself a novice writer who had published poems and articles in the local press, and the six-year-old child looked to him to tell him just how he too could write the songs that fascinated him. It's an oddly moving picture, that picture of the eager child and the older boy, puzzling together over the intricacies of rhyme and metre. And it seems that the child, who wanted to be a poet, learned his lesson well. For here's how a woman who once lived in Slane remembers the days when she was a child at school in Slane and Ledwidge was a poet in the making.
5: His gentleness brought him very close to the child's mind. To them he was generous and without a trace of condescension. If one versified, and most children do at some stage, one did not fear to approach this adult with a sheaf of ballads for commendation. And if they didn't gain commendation, there was no offence given or taken. The pages were turned over, the right hand measured a rhythm, and in the course of the proceedings, one sensed that there was more to poetry than the expression of Aaron's woes. It was indeed a painful discovery at the time that one's choicest elegiacs over Ireland's fallen head had to be straight-laced into jackets of metre.
1: That memory from childhood isn't the whole picture, of course. It's pleasant to look back and see the poet receiving honour in his own country, if only from a schoolchild. But slain of the early 1900s was scarcely a pastoral paradise for poets. Before Francis Ledwidge was eleven years old, his older brother, Pat, died. And very soon the young lad found that for him the end of school days marked the end of the days when he might expect help in any search for knowledge. From his mother, widow these six years and with so large a young family to support, He couldn't, and didn't, expect additional sacrifices for him alone. He knew he'd have to fumble and grope, and find his own way to make his dreams come true. Joe Ledwidge is able to tell us something about those days.
4: Frank continued writing poetry all through his school days. When he left school, he seemed to realise the poor standard of education he had received and he devoted all his spare time to study on winter nights. He still studied and wrote, borrowing a book here and there. He knew the difference between real poetry and the other kind, and it was the recognised poets he read and enjoyed.
1: Borrowing a book here and there. But perhaps even more revealing is the record of the books he borrowed the standard poets, 19th-century versifiers, old-school readers. But as well as these, old copies of prayers, encyclopaedia and dictionaries, always dictionaries, out of which he tried to quarry the magic of words. Again the picture becomes a little clearer. The picture of a boy in the lamplit kitchen of the cottage on the hill above Slane, searching through a doggy dictionary, to find the key to the mystery of words. But of course, the pages of a dictionary weren't enough to furnish the mind of a poet who was so soon to write the poem to a linnet in a cage.
6: When spring is in the fields that stain your wing and the blue distance is alive with song and finny quiets of the gabbling spring rock lilies red and long At dewy daybreak I will set you free, In ferny turnings of the Woodbine Lane, Where faint-voiced echoes leave and cross in glee The hilly, swollen plain.
1: One of the very early poems. To the making of it, and to the making of so many, so very many, later poems, Which drew their music and their colour from an eager vision of the pastoral scene, went much of boyhood days in the fields along the Boyne. Those days which Christopher Cassidy, his friend of half a century and more ago, recalls.
7: Francis Ledwich was born in this, under the same roof as as I, uh, as I was. And, and we lived together Christopher Cassidy. <laughs> as neighbours, reared together and went to school together. And after finishing school, we walked about with the local farmers and people every, here and there and every place we could get. So we, we walked along from time to time and we used to travel the fields, rambling as young boys will always do in the evenings. Frank was always very interested in listening to the birds singing and their movements in the trees. And he used to take a terrible interest in the blackboard singing and he used to write little poems to the local paper and he used to get great credit for them.
1: It's doubtful now if Ledwidge in those days got the credit he deserved or indeed got any credit at all. Well credit or no credit, recognition or not, he continued to write until at last his first verses began to appear in print. In the files of the Drogheda Independent for the first decade of the century are many of us poems. In this paper, his first
2: published poem appears. The harvest fields bend down their golden ears to catch the message of the passing breeze. Anon a night bird cries across the lees. Save for the brook that rambles o'er the plain, no other sound disturbs the night's tranquil rain.
1: Well, perhaps there are in this verse louder echoes of those borrowed books of the nineteenth-century versifiers, of the old school-readers, of Grey and Goldsmith, than there is of the boy murmuring past Beaupark. But with that first published poem, the boy had begun to see things with his own eyes. Soon he'd watch the wind in a field of wheat, and see green ripples singing down the corn. He was beginning to learn how to translate his extraordinarily vivid sense of scene into lyrical lines, a gift which, until the very last stages of his development as a poet, was to limit him to the relatively minor role of a singer of place. And perhaps he was beginning to learn, too, that he'd never be wholly happy away from the fields of the boy.
3: He went
8: to Dublin then, and I don't know how long he was in Dublin, I couldn't tell how long he was in Dublin, but he compiled. He came back.
1: Paddy Bowie was right. He came back. He was sent to Dublin, apprenticed to a grocer, but the boy who'd been storing up so many vivid memories of home wasn't likely to linger over long, measuring out quarters of tea and half ounces of snuff. Within a couple of weeks, he rebelled against the life of the city. One night, when all the town was asleep, he lifted the latch of the grocer's shop, and let himself out quietly into the darkness. He had a long lonely road before him, thirty miles long, but his heart was light when he set out to walk through the night, and he was home and slain in time to see the sun coming up over the hill of Slain and to hear the blackbird singing down the village street.
9: Above me smokes the little town, with its whitewashed walls and roofs of brown, and its octagon spire toned smoothly down as the holy mines within. And wondrously, impudently sweet, half of impassion, half conceit, the blackbird sings adown the street like the piper of Hamelin. I hear him and I feel the lure drawing me back to the homely moor, I'll go and close the mountain's door on the city's strife
10: and din.
1: It's easy to look back now and to say how right the lad was to throw up the dull servitude of the grocer's shop, and to return to the boyne and the blackbird singing in the river fields. It is even easier to point out, censoriously, that by abandoning the security of a hard-won job, the lad was not only sorely disappointing the widowed mother he loved so very deeply, but was also condemning himself to the uncertainties of life as a casual worker in the farms and in the copper mines and on the county roads. But perhaps it's fairer to see that the choice of a sixteen-year-old lad not as a romantic whimsy or as a homesick selfishness, but as a measure of a certainty of the way of life he had determined for himself. Young as he was, he must have known that there were very few in the slain of 1907 who would think his determination to spend his life writing poetry as anything but an excuse for idleness and waywardness. Well, maybe he was wayward, but he put a brave face on it. The little girl to whom he taught the rules of versifying remembers that.
5: He was his own simple self, and in my time at any rate seemed happy to be himself and content to take life as it came to him. He voiced no resentment against a society that tied him to uninteresting chores, nor any contempt for the unpreceptive Philistines. These things were irrelevancies. What did matter, what he would walk twenty miles to savour, were the million and one details that made up the pastoral beauty of his native mead.
1: Still, behind that show of acceptance or was it the faint contempt of a man who was inwardly certain of his own worth? There must have been moments of discontent. Something of that discontent sounds in a poem which has never been published until now, but kept through the years until
2: his own death, by his friend Matt, and kept since by Matt's family. And I thought how they will ignore me, because of my humble line, that I've guided the plough before me, and bored in the deep, wet mind. But it was only to a friend as intimate as Matt
1: that he could show, even momentarily, the face of discontent. He went on writing, and soon his poems were being published regularly, in the local papers, in Dublin weeklies, where he rubbed shoulders in print with such popular, if minor, writers as Nora tynan or mahony Rosa Holland, Theresa Brayton. In an effort to make contact with others who wrote, he joined the Irish Fireside Club, a sort of correspondence club for beginning writers. Brian O'Higgins tells how this club helped young writers isolated from their fellow writers.
8: It was as something of a veteran of the Irish Fireside Club that I was addressed by a younger member who wrote to me from Slane. His name was Francis Ledwich, and his letter was a request to me to contribute to a manuscript magazine he wanted to launch and edit. He enclosed the editorial article with his letter and nine names and addresses of other members of the club. He hoped that I would write something in prose or verse, add it to his article, and post both to the next name on the list with a letter requesting the bearer to do as I had done. The magazine, grown greatly in size it was hoped, would eventually return to the editor in Slane. Whether it ever reached him, or whether volume two ever went on its travels, I do not know.
1: Well, editing a chain letter magazine was one way of keeping in touch. Paddy Coyle of the Hill of Slane recalls another interest of Ledwidge, perhaps the interest which prompted him to try his hand at playwriting, an attempt which produced nothing more than a highfalutin melodrama of life in high society. With Paddy Coyle, Ledwich launched a drama class, which entertained, even if it didn't particularly edify or educate, audiences in Slane and the surrounding villages with a succession of red-blooded melodramas from the stable of Con the Chocron and The Wicklow Wedding, and The Colleen Bourne.
8: He took part in in, um, many of the productions there, like in the line of uh, The Place of Desire and Poe, Captain Jack, and all these other kind of things. He was a genius in that line, and a grand, and great for jokes.
1: I'm sure he was and I'm sure he enjoyed hugely the rambustious plays of Boussacold. Still, it would be just a bit too cold and sterile to read into everything a lad of twenty or so did and said, some overmastering desire to serve the ends of poetry. It's simpler, and perhaps truer, to look back and see the warm-hearted, life-loving boy finding what joy he could in the village life about him as good a way as any for a poet to warm his hands at the fire of life. There were dances in Slane in and Wilkins Town and Beaupark, and even as far afield as R.D., as he himself remembers, lamenting in the next day letter to a girl the storm and wind of a long cycle ride home to Slane. There were odd evenings in the pubs of Slane and Ashbourne or Navon, though Paddy Coyle remembers that poetry didn't seem to give a man an extra good head for liquor a judgment which a British Army court-martial of later days was to endorse when they robbed Corporal Ledgewidge of a stripe as a price of a lively night out. And, with Matt McGooner's fiddle as passport, there were pleasant evenings of talk and music about the kitchen firesides of houses up and down the valley of the Boy. the man who made a fiddle cry and earned a place in song for it. Looking back, it's easy to see how important to the youthful poet trying to find his feet among people who paid little heed to poets or poetry. That friendship with Matt must have been. For Matt was also ambitious to write. Sketches and stories, he wrote. But the fact that he too had a writer's itch made him a kindred spirit it was possible for Ledwich to write to him without fear of ridicule or misunderstanding. Such consciously poetic letters as this, one of the many treasured among Matt's papers.
9: Pegasus is a contrary nag, and when the disagreeable mood is on him, it's best to allow him his humour, for the simple reason that if I mounted him and spurred him on an involuntary journey, he would come down from the sublime to the ridiculous occasionally. And every time he descended... The critics would put him in the pound and abuse me sorely. But I have taken a few short flights on him. I saw the last poet in the world dying, and I saw a young queen in a far-off land bemoaning the departure of a king. All these things I have sung about and would be pleased to read for you when you come next Sunday.
1: about this time, in the summer of 1912, that Francis Ledwidge parceled up that often described copybook of poems and posted it to Lord Dunsany, whose name he'd seen by chance in reading the criticism of a play. The story has often been told, as has the story of Dunsany's instant and generous response. But in the telling, that tattered copybook has been all too often described as a juvenile collection of raw rhymes and crude versifying. It was nothing of the sort. That book of manuscript poems and of clippings from the poet's corners of local papers carried such verses as this.
6: And when the sunny raindrops from the edge of midday wind and meadows lean one way and a long whisper passes through the sedge beside the broken water let me stay where these old airs upon my memory play, and silent changes colour up the hedge.
10: I wrote to him, greeting him as a true poet, and he was intensely grateful for this, and never forgot that gratitude. Though a lark owes nothing to us for knowing that he is a lark.
1: That was what Lord Dunsany said. He saw at first glance... How far ledwich had travelled alone along the road to his ambitions he saw how little the immaturities and trite phrases that studded the copy-book counted against the unfaltering lines and the sheer music of melody in a minor but truly a tune key he saw how little was needed to read ledwich's verse of false, born out of too close study of those 19th-century versifiers of the rolling lee and spreading foam and azure sky. In a fortunate flash of insight, he gave the poet of Slane the key he had been
10: seeking since his sixth year. I gave him a copy of Keats's poems, and almost at once I thought I detected an improvement in his poems. A kind of echo, such as stirs faintly in bells when another is ringing beside them. No more than that, for he imitated nobody. But I think that his spirit was strengthened by
1: meeting the spirit of Keats. It wasn't the improvement that was so remarkable, but the speed with which the improvement came about. It seemed as if Ledwich had only to be shown where his faults lay, rid himself right away of those faults. No doubt at all, Dunsany did him a notable service when he gave him that copy of Keats. And Dunsany did him one other service. He brought him amongst people who, in lesser or greater degree, shared his love for the colour and beauty of words. Catherine Tynan remembers him at that time.
11: At a picture show of A.E.'s I met, for the first time, Francis Ledwich who was going round the pictures very much under the wing of Lord Dunsany. I carried away an impression of newly washed red and white wholesomeness. He was so eager, so humble, so reverent to an older writer, that I've always thought of him as something very winsome.
1: Well, winsome seems hardly the most apt word to describe a vigorous lad in his early twenties whose life was spent, both at work and in his leisure hours, in the sun and rain of the barn fields. From that other friend who remembers him since the days when he smiled over her patriotic ballads comes a description perhaps more detailed and precise.
5: I remember him as a loose-limbed, well-set-up young man whose clothes hung loosely on him as he walked our roads with slow gait and pronounced slouch. His head was well-modelled, his mouth full-lipped and sensitive. He spoke very softly. His eyes were deep brown, seeming darker perhaps in the setting of his browned complexion. But while these dark eyes were sometimes meditative, most often they were alert, alive with interest in the passing scene. His gentleness and natural courtesy were memorable.
1: Yes. Perhaps that's how he really looked, the village poet whom Lord Dunsainy brought amongst his friends. There's no doubting Dedwich's delight in meeting poets and writers, and there's little doubt that these contacts helped him as a writer, giving him confidence in himself, encouraging him to see himself as a writer among writers, doing praiseworthy work. But just at this time he found another spur to fame,
9: he fell in love. Your name is in the whisper of the woods, like beauty calling for a poet's song to one whose heart had suffered many a wrong in the lean hands of pain. And when the broods of flower eyes waken all the streams along, in tender whiles I feel most near to you. Oh, when we meet there shall be sun and blue, strong as the spring is strong.
1: Those lines were not written for publication or for the criticism or admiration of his new friends. They were dashed off in the excitement of a love as gentle and as romantic as his verse and sent to the girl who inspired them. Ledwich had known her for several years both in her own village of Wilkinstown and in Slane but had been too shy to do more than speak to her in passing until his first moment of success gave him courage. In the charmingly tender letters which he wrote her, and which have fortunately survived the years, she is in his mind and in his verses.
6: Sometime I will show you a few of the many things I wrote about my love for you, and hid them behind vague titles, for I love you a long time, but couldn't say it.
1: That spring of 1914, must have been a happy time for a lad in love. His first poems were being well received, and his name was beginning to become known to a wider audience than the readers of the local press. In the privacy of his love letters, he, who was so modest about his talent, let himself boast a little to the girl.
6: My photograph and three columns of my biography appeared in 27 English papers last Saturday, I would send you one, but your people would wonder how you got it.
1: No doubt about it, the blackbirds must have been singing sweetly by the bind in those summer days of 1914. But time was running out.
2: In August 1914, war was declared between England and Germany. Lord Anseny immediately joined his
3: regiment, the 5th Royal Inskilling Fusiliers and it wasn't long until Ledwidge had joined his lordship's regiment. A moment now. Let's go into that.
1: It's been said often enough, and sometimes bitterly enough, that Lord Unsaney put the demands of empire higher than the claims of poetry, and persuaded his protégé to join the British army. Now, it may very well be that a sense of gratitude in such a warm-hearted and sensitive man as Ledwidge undoubtedly was, may have influenced the poet's decision to join up. But those who were closest to him in that autumn of 1914 have their own opinions on this matter. Let Joe Ledwidge speak for them.
4: When he joined the army in 1914, it was his own personal decision. He was not influenced in the slightest degree by Dunsany, who had joined the forces immediately, war broke out. I know certain people have the idea that Dunsany induced Frank to join, but there is no foundation for such a thing beyond the association of the two men. Dunsany did not recruit him.
1: Well, that seems to be the simple truth of the matter but the fact is that he did join up. And then began his travels, from barrack Room to Battlefield, to the Dardanelles and Salonica, to Flanders and to Picardy. From one of the many letters he wrote to his friend Matt come these lines.
3: I flew in here on Pegasus, Matt. He brought me here and then left me, but I think he will come back for me when peace unfurls her flag of truce. But I may not be anywhere in the world when he calls again. If you do not hear me singing after the war, you will know that I have gone across the tide to Keats and the rest of them. Spring is here and all my blackbirds singing, and I am packing up for the fields of war. Ah, it's hard thinking of old times, Matt The pleasant Sundays we used to spend And the hopes we entertained Do you ever play sad music now? Every time you play the blackbird Think on me I love that tune And snatches of it sing in my memory Like ghosts haunting an old garden My memory is no more than an old garden now ...full of the withered flowers of a dead summer.
1: The horrors of war pressed heavily on him, that's true... Yet it is also true that the poems he wrote in the darkest shadow of war, in a hospital in Egypt, in France, on the battlefields of Greece, were scarcely concerned at all with the death and destruction and carnage all about him. Here, as in the Boyne Valley, the loveliness of place and scene
9: filled all his poet's vision. The sheep are coming home in Greece, Hark the bells on every hill, flock by flock and fleece by fleece, wandering wide a little peace through evenings red and still, stopping where the pathways cease, cropping with hurried will.
1: Perhaps that turning to scenes of pastoral peace was his way of shutting his mind against horror, or of going back in memory to the fields of the boyne. For certainly the boyne and its fields seemed scarcely ever out of his mind. The letters of courtship that he wrote to the girl he left in Meath are heavy with his memories of the places they both knew so
6: well. Are the birds singing yet? When you hear the blackbird, think of me. Always remember me when you hear a blackbird. When the war is over, if I am not shot, I am coming back to slain. I love it very much because from nowhere else have I ever had such calls to my heart. I love Stanley Hill and all those distances so blue around it. I love the boyne and the fields through which it sings. I love the peace of it above all. I think I must have been born in the morning very early, for when I think of the old places it is as I used to see them in the mornings early. The strange thing too, I always think of you in the mornings. Perhaps love was born in the morning too.
2: By that time, it must have been the spring of 1916. And the Easter of 1916 must have brought Ledwidge other thoughts of Ireland.
1: That is true. With the rising of 1916, Ledwidge saw the poets whose work he loved rise up in rebellion against the king whose uniform he wore. Later, he was to ease some of the bitterness of that moment, in poems which woke in him a deeper passion than that quiet love of his for the fields and streams and singing birds of slain. But of Easter week itself, a story is told on the authority of Con O'Leary, the Cork novelist and journalist, whose wartime days were spent in England.
12: During Easter week 1916, Francis Ledwidge came on leave to Manchester and came to see me. He was very excited and said he was going to Ireland that night with some wild aspiration of making cause with the rebels. On his arrival in Dublin, he found that contact with the rebels was impossible. They were hemmed in, swept by purgatorial fire. In about a week, Ledwidge was in Manchester again, returning to the front. It was the evening of the day on which the executions of Pierce and Clark and MacDonagh were announced. I never saw a man more distressed than Ledwidge was. He had a capacity for deep feeling, and that night he wore his hat on his sleeve. He repeated several times the lines from Kathleen E. Houlihan, which begin, I will go and cry with the women, for yellow-haired Donna is dead with a hempen rope for a neckcloth and a white cloth on his head. He stayed in my room until two o'clock in the morning, talking of many things but ever reverting to the one sad theme. I saw the pathos of this man wearing the uniform which his friends had taken the field against, and I foresaw the possibility that he too might be cut off in his bloom and join his friends in the impartial bivouac of the ranks of death. Finally, I went some way towards his sister's house with him, and as we passed the illuminated public clock at the junction in Great Jackson Street, he quoted lines from Porrick Cullum. The city clock points out the hours. They look like moons on the darkened towers.
1: No one will ever know now just what happened in Dublin during those Easter days of 1916 when the poet in the King's uniform found himself cut off from his friends and fellow poets by the barricades of revolution. But we do know how this conflict in the mind of the poet, this involvement in the tragedy and triumph of his poet friends, so worked upon him that out of his sorrow came that memorable poem Thomas MacDonagh.
11: He shall not hear the bittern cry in the wild sky where he is lain, nor voices of the sweeter birds above the wailing of the rain. Nor shall he know when loud march blows through slanting snows her fanfare shrill, blowing to flame the golden cup of many an upset daffodil. But when the dark cow leaves the moor, and pastures poor with greedy weeds. Perhaps he'll hear her low at morn, Lifting her horn in pleasant meads.
1: Again and again that deeper note sounds And the poems which came out of the blood and mud of Flanders During the winter of 1916 And the spring and early summer of 1917.
10: I heard the poor old woman say At break of day the fowler came And took my blackbirds from their songs Who loved me long through shame and blame
1: Once again time was running out. The spring of 1917 was turning to high summer when Francis Ledwich came home to Slane for what was to be his last furlough. His heart was sick with the thoughts of war.
4: He hated the business of war and didn't want to talk about it. He was abhorred by it and told me he would never join again if he survived. Not, he said, if the Germans were coming over the garden wall. One other who remembers him
1: during that last furlough is Mrs Margaret O'Reilly of Beaupark. He talked to her, not of war, but of the places along the Bowne which they both knew since childhood.
5: The Valley of the Bowne he simply loved, and always when he came home on holidays from anywhere, he took long walks by it. He was particularly fond of the Janeville district. I remember that. I remember him also saying that one place he would love to be buried was the little churchyard at Fenner, overlooking the Bine.
1: The old churchyard stands above the bridge of the Bine, looking across the river to Slane. It's a quiet place, in the quiet of the Bine valley. But Francis Ledwidge was not to know its quiet. He returned to France and soon was in the front line. From the trenches, a letter came to the girl in Meath. The letter was dated July twelfth, nineteen 1917.
9: I have been dreaming about you, and it has made me rather anxious. I sincerely hope that nothing troubles you in body or soul. It must be quite beautiful on the boy now. How happy you are to be living in peace and quiet, where birds still sing, and the country wears her confirmation dress. Out here the land is broken by shells, and the woods are like skeletons, and when you come to a little town, it's only to find poor homeless people lamenting over what once was a cheery home. As I write this, a big battle is raging on my left hand, and if it extends to this part of the line, I'll be pulling triggers like a man gone mad. I may be home again soon. In fact, I'm only waiting to be called home. God send it soon.
1: It was very soon. Nineteen days later, on the last day of July 1917, Francis Ledwidge was killed by a shell. On that day... The last poem used to write reached Lord Unsaney. It was The Lanon She. And these are the closing lines of the poem, and of a poet's
6: life. day I know she'll wait for me at last, And lock me fast in white embraces, And down mysterious ways of love, We too shall move to fairy places.
0: That was Blackbird on the Boyne, a portrait of Francis Ledwidge drawn from the writings and reminiscences of his contemporaries and from his own published and unpublished writings. The program was compiled by Philip Rooney. The narrator was Arthur O'Sullivan, and also taking part were Daphne Carroll, Jim Norton, Peg Monaghan, Frank O'Dwyer, Lionel Day, Brendan Caldwell, George Green, Deirdre O'Mara, and Chris Curran. The Fiddler was Johnny Doherty. Production was by Seamus Branagh.